right, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and let's uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're finally at the last chapter of this book. It has been a great book. I started out saying that uh, it's, it's a book on par with the book of Romans theologically. And so if you have followed along, you definitely have learned some theology and so chapter 13 gets to the practical part. In fact, when you look at the book of Romans 2, chapter 12, after all that theology begins to get very practical. See, God always lays the theological foundation, the theoretical foundation first before we practice anything properly so we know what we're practicing and why we're practicing it and who we're practicing it for. And so... The Lord always does that, and so far we've seen that Jesus Christ is the final word of God the Father, the final revelation. Uh, he is greater than the universe because He's created it. He is greater than angels. He is greater than Moses and Abraham. He is greater than death itself he defeats it he is he holds victory over satan he's established a future with a kingdom and so jesus christ has the final word of everything and of course the plan of salvation and if someone rejects christ they have no hope for a future with god if they trust in Christ and they follow Christ, they have a bright and hopeful future, something that is quite encouraging for anyone who knows the Word of God. So when we get to chapter 13, we're going to be looking at the imperative virtues of the Christian race. In other words, this is what God wants us to do. This is how He wants us to be. We know all this theology now. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, everything changes in your life. So last time, we were in the book of Hebrews. We were in the text in verse number 28 of Hebrews chapter 12. And it says there, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So we already received a kingdom from God. And in receiving that kingdom, we were exhorted in two general things, a general title. The first one in verse number 28, uh, we are to live in expressible thankfulness. All right, And if you notice what it says in verse 28, it says, let us show gratitude. It does, doesn't just merely mean let us speak things that we're thankful for, but let us show that we're thankful. Uh, before God and before people, before the church. And so that's what happens when we, a person gets really converted. The, all the impediments uh, of worship are removed, and, and so a Christian is now cleansed in their conscience. They're cleansed of their guilt. They're cleansed of their defilement caused by their own sin, by transmitted sin from Adam. And so therefore, they're cleansed of all that by the blood of Christ, by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and now they're freed up 
For the first time in your life, you are freed up. You are given by God the ability to be genuinely thankful to our great God and Savior for everything and then to put thankfulness on display before people. When people are not thankful, in fact, in an ungodly generation, Paul told Timothy, people will be unthankful to God, right? Christians on the other side, no matter how bad it gets, we ought to be thankful and ought to show thankfulness in our circumstances. Even if our circumstances have totally gone south and they're nothing what we planned, in fact, they go against our hopes and dreams. We still need to be thankful there because God's doing something. God's providential. He's, he's made no mistakes in our lives when things don't go our way. And the second thing it tells us in verse number 28 is that we are now able to genuinely serve our great God and Savior with the right attitude. It says in verse 28, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So, the ground for acceptable worship is living your life in the true light of the essential character of God. And what is that? That God is a consuming fire. I mentioned that last time. He is holy. And God's holy character remains unchanged under the new covenant. So when people say to you, isn't the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? The answer to that is no. Same God. In fact, as I mentioned last week, the God of Zion is the God of Sinai. He's the same God. He is still a consuming fire. He still will hold people responsible for, the sin, for their sins. The wrath of God still abides upon men in condemnation because of their, they love darkness rather than life. God is still that God. Of course, He is a God of mercy and love too so we those are the two things that come together when we become believers all right we have to keep in mind that both god is a consuming fire but he is a god of consuming love too and that's what we're going to be growing in our christian life our whole christian life understanding god's love demonstrated towards us so we must worship with reverence and awe before god and as we do as we do, as we grow, as we grow in our ever-expanding knowledge of God's revelation through His only begotten Son, spoken to you and to me through the Word of God, and because of this ever-growing knowledge, our faith begins to increase. We learn how to trust God, walk with God by faith, believing everything He says is true, and that and even in all that, there's still one thing that we need as we're growing. And you say, well, what is that? What do we need? Well, we need endurance. In this next sec section, we need endurance. Maybe we need endurance here more than in any other place in our Christian life. Because this next section in Hebrews 13 talks about relationships. People. Enduring with people. That's tough. As I said last night, people are tough. They're not easy. You're not easy to get along with. And sometimes I'm not either. And I'm working on that. God's working on me. And he's working on you, right? So, see, God wants us to endure 
in these relations. Don't give up on people in relationships. In fact, this comes from back from Roman, I mean, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, where it says, you have need of endurance. Remember that passage there? So it's present. In the present tense, we all have this great essential need and we need to continue to endure. So listening to the one who speaks from heaven and heeding what is said by God himself will develop in you and I a God-like character. But if we don't listen, and this has been the warning throughout Hebrews, if you don't listen to God's word anymore, if you don't heed what you're listening to, then you will not become like him. You will not act like him. Neither will you know what he wants you to do, and neither will you know what he wants you to know. So see, all these things God has designed for our growth to become strong in the faith. So you will not live by faith if you are not growing and listening and doing what God says already. And as a consequence, you will not please the Lord. And so the goal of theology is for you to please God, for me to please God. So you see... We believers need endurance so that we can practice our faith, especially in our relationship with other people. You see, we believers are not to think that we live in a vacuum. We don't. Matter of fact, far from it. We are now part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is called the church. The gathered out assembly from darkness to light that meet together. And that means that the church and all of us are responsible to attend to what I'm calling our social duties as Christians. Our social duties as Christians. That we should all be careful not to become slack in our social responsibilities, but to be diligent to offer up sacrifices that are well-pleasing to God in our relationships. It was Jay Adams who said, it is faith to the well-pleasing walk with God. It is the faith that we're growing in. That should be the goal of all Christians. And then he said this, unbelievers cannot please God. Even though they think they may be pleasing God, they cannot please God. There is nothing an unbeliever can do to get God to smile upon their approval unless they come to faith in Christ Jesus. So apart from Jesus Christ and his redeeming sacrifice, they are utterly unable to do anything to please God whatsoever. So you and I need endurance because... Why do we need endurance? We need endurance because the Christian walk is a struggle. The Christian walk is a race. It is a battle. And so therefore we need endurance to maintain healthy relationships which will always be a challenge. Whether that relationship is a husband and a wife, parents and children, employee and or the, between the employee and the boss 
or whatever other relationships that we have, especially relationships within the body of Christ, where God's gathering together a melting pot of cultures, a melting pot of ages, a melting pot of backgrounds that come together in one place, and normally that would cause great strife and even wars. But when we come to Christ, and Christ is our common bond, then we have peace and in that peace and in the unity the spirit of god gives us we develop relationships that we would never have had unless we came to christ i would have never met some people in my lifetime unless i came to christ because we would never come together we would have nothing to talk about there would be no common ground whatsoever so as we look at our text this morning, there are actually the first five verses of Hebrews chapter 13 are sprinkled with, now you don't necessarily get this in the English, but in the Greek it is very powerful. There are, it's sprinkled with imperatives. All right, imperatives are commands. All right, these, or this is what you ought to be doing as a believer. This is what you ought to be as a believer. Matter of fact, I could say it like this. These must be in your life if you're a Christian. So today I will be pointing to only th- uh, two or three of the five imperatives, imperative virtues while, while running the Christian race. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And I want to I spend time on the first one because it is the crowning virtue. It is the most important of all the others. It always comes first. It is always the first thing. And here's the first imperative that we must cultivate as a body, as Christians. We must cultivate the virtue of constant love. Now, do you really know what love is? Have you, does anybody really know what love is? What it takes? Love is actually a, an action word. And in here, he's considering those who are believers that we ought to cultivate. We must, in other words, cultivate this virtue of constant love. Look what it says in verse number 1 of Hebrews 13. Let love of the brethren continue. Stop right there. There's where he starts the practical part of theology. Let it continue. In fact, it tells us exactly who to love and how it should take place. The term continue can also include words like remain, let love remain, let love last, let love persist, let love live, let love exist among you. Now, this could be here for this very purpose. That remember... The admonition against people slipping into apostasy or going back to their old religious system, the religious system of works, which was the Judaism at that time, that this was going to be in jeopardy here because possibly people were giving up, continuing to love the brethren. Why? Because of the troubles, because of the things that have to be worked out between uh, couples and groups of people once you become a believer theological things have to be worked out social things have to be worked out knowledge has to be worked out 
All kinds of things have to be worked out when we come together in Christ Jesus. And so he's saying here, listen, let love of the brethren continue. Don't let that stop. If anything else stops, don't let that stop. Because this is going to be the essential crowning virtue of all believers. In fact, the Word of God regularly informs us that His infinite love, God's infinite love for us, is the source and the stimulus of our love for each other. That God loves us not because we are worthy, not even as some think because He sees in us possibilities yet unrealized. God loves us although He knows full well our complete unworthiness. He knows at best that our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags And still He loves us. He loves, moreover, without the thought of advantage, for there is nothing we can bring to Him who made all things. See, He loves because it is His nature to love. He loves because He is love. And God's love is a love that costs something. In fact, it is an active love, a love that is revealed mostly and clearly in what Christ did on the cross. That is the demonstration of love. That's why Paul brings out, listen, here's the demonstration of love, that Christ died for the ungodly. How much greater love can you get than that? That's the action of love. So, see, we are all to maintain the constant evidences of brotherly love, especially, especially showing how Christian brethren ought to get along within the community of the church. If anybody can look in amongst believers, they have to see that. That these people love each other, and they are so different, and yet they love each other. Why do they love each other? Well, the Word of God is literally riddled with passages of Scripture about love. I can't go to every one. I don't have time for that, but I do want to look at a few. And here's one I want you to turn to. Turn over. If you keep going in Hebrews, just a few uh, books ahead, you're going to find 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 14. 1 John 3, 14. Because there is... In this passage of Scripture, it tells us we know we live. In other words, we know we have spiritual life because we love. It says in verse 14 of 1 John chapter 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love who? The brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So there is this back and forth between death and life, life and death. How do you know you're spiritually alive? It's because you love people that you wouldn't have loved before because of Christ Jesus. Because Jesus Christ demonstrated his love towards you that were, you were not lovely at all. You were not lovable at all because of your sin and the things that you offended God in. And so we should not miss what is being written here in 1 John. The emphasis is on the objects of love, not the kind of love. The primary objects of love are the fellow members of the body because we 
Love the brethren, it says. And here the Greek word is Philadelphia. The word means specifically brotherly love of one Christian for another. It is not the word agape, which we use often, right? The source word is agape because that word comes out of 1 John 4, 8, God is love, God is agape. That is divine love, right? But, so God is the source of love and he's the greatest example of love. However, when we use, it's used for the practical outworking of that love in the body, it is the word Philadelphia that is used. It's regularly used all over the place. And this means the emphasis is mostly concerned about love within the fellowship. The brotherly love, the love inside the community, love for each other, in other words. All right? So biblical love always is accompanied by action and the commitment of acting in the best interests of others. In fact, you cannot love in a vacuum. You can't love alone. You have to love with other people there. You have to love with them around. You have to love with all their weaknesses, with all their impediments, with all their difficulties and personality problems. That's where love actually is fleshed out the most. So, of course, our first object of love must be the Lord himself, Right, That's where it all starts. The Christian faith is more than a code of rules. It's more than a system of doctrines. It's more than a set of practices. At its core, Christianity is a person, and that person is God himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God is always the first object of our love. We cannot reverse that. We can't say, I love people without loving God. You must love God first. And then God's love flows through us as the source to other people. It can't be reversed. It can't go the other way. You know, having settled on love for God, we are led to a compelling love for the body, for other people. Love for the family of God. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, we are family because of Christ. Scripture is saying to us, this is crucial for the believer. It is not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. It is an imperative virtue which gives the gathered assembly power. Love is powerful. In fact, it is... is, it is as powerful and goes along with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine and love for the brethren is the most powerful thing we have. We can't give up neither one of them. In fact, they go together because they are the visible demonstration of the gospel. Are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you believe the word of God? Yes. All right. Show me. So the love part of it is where you show people. In fact, again, looking at Hebrews, but just going over to Romans chapter 12, all right, just turn there for a minute. I want you to see, again, the last chapters of Romans. What is he talking about there? After all the doctrine, he talks about the righteousness of God and salvation and all the difficult 
things that he spoke of in Romans. How does he end there? What does he say in that chapter? Well, look at Romans chapter 12 and verse number 5. Because he says here, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to let love continue as Hebrews says. But here, how do you do it? By caring for one another, Romans 5. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Secondly, we're to be devoted to one another, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in what? Brotherly love. There's that word Philadelphia again. In verse 10 again, give preference to one another in honor. That means we're to honor one another. Verse 12, be enduring and praying for one another, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Verse number 13, and sharing with one another, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. In verse 15 of Romans 12, rejoicing with one another. It says rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourning with one another, weep with those who weep. Verse number 15, what is he talking about? He's talking about what it means to flesh out love amongst the brethren at different times and in different ways as you're grow, all growing in Christ. So spiritual fellowship is not a luxury, but a necessity for vital and, vital and spiritual and healthy growth amongst believers. So some ask me sometimes, um, Pastor, as a Christian, are we to keep the commandments? And, and what, the, what does the commandments have to do with love? Are we to live that standard? And I would say to them, uh, no. But then I would say this. Actually, we are called to live a, by a higher standard. It's called, the, it's called the law of Christ. That standard is high. It's just like when the Lord said, you have heard it, it's been said, don't murder, right? But I say, I say, if you're angry with your brother, right? See, the Lord is, 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 he is becoming the Lord of the law and superseding it and making it higher. He says, you, I'm, it's not murder anymore, it's anger in your heart. It's not adultery, it's lust in your heart. See, the standard is higher for a believer. And yet, that standard has everything to do with love. In fact, the law has everything to do with love when we become believers. In fact, if you're right there in Romans, look over to Romans chapter 13, and you'll get a sense of what I mean. Jesus calls us to this higher standard in relationship to the commandments, and it also begins to answer the all-important question, how shall we begin to love as God does? Well, in verse number 8 of Romans 13, it says this, Owe nothing to anyone except what? To love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then it goes on to say this. It fleshes that out, and it says in verse number 9, For this you shall not commit adultery. In other words, you shall love, and therefore you shall not commit adultery. But instead, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pers uh, preserve the sacredness of the marriage bond as a church. We're to believe in and uphold and honor the marriage bond as, as a church and help people in their marriages so their marriages become strong. So you as a believer are called to complete fidelity in marriage. That's 
how we love. We love our wives and husbands in marriage that God says that's, that's the seventh commandment. Another way we love is found in the next part of the verse, and you shall not murder or, of course, hate, because remember, by God's definition, hatred is as much murder as an unlawful taking of another's life. But what are we supposed to do? We are instead to help your fellow brother and sister in Christ to keep alive and to keep well. You, as a believer, are to be truthful, to be kind, to be tender-hearted, to be forgiving to your brothers and sisters in Christ, just as the presence of jealousy and hatred in a life indicates a person is of the world and not of the family of God, the same when love and self-sacrifice is there, it indicates that such a one has passed out of this world into the family of God. And so that's what we're to do. This has everything to do with the law. And then also in Romans it says this, How shall I love? Therefore I shall not steal. That's how I love people. I don't steal their property. Instead, I help them protect their property, help protect what God's given them. And that's what I do. I don't take it from them. I don't steal it from them. I don't manipulate them. And what is that? That's showing love to them. Because their property is just as important to me as my property. And so therefore, that's how I show them love. And then, again, in Romans, he doesn't go through all the commandments, but he says, thou shalt not covet. That's how I love. Instead of Instead of wanting what my neighbor has and trying to keep up with the Joneses, you know, that phrase that people use there, I am to rejoice that, wow, look at how God blessed my neighbor. They, maybe they have more than me, and I'll never have what they have. I don't begrudge them. I don't look, I don't, I'm not disappointed because of it, but no, I don't covet what they have, but I rejoice in the fact that the Lord has blessed them and given it to them. And I thank the Lord for it. And of course, that is how I love them. That's how I love them. That's how I I love through the commandments. And then notice in verse number 9 what he says in Romans chapter 13. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So when we become a Christian, do we keep the law? Absolutely. But this is how we keep the law. We have the spirit of the law, which is the spirit of Christ in us, and we learn to take the law and live it with with real life. It's not a dead thing. It's not something just stamped in stone. It's real to us. And so therefore, that's how I love people. See, my friends, if you love Jesus Christ, it, it would definitely follow by a natural inference that you would love God's offspring or God's children. If we love Christ, as we say we do, then we should not, should we not also say that we love Christ's church and all of God's people? So the question would be here, do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ? And do you desire to fellowship with them? Eat with them? See, this is the crowning imperative virtue that Hebrews is telling us, listen, listen, after all this theology, make sure it remains in your body. Make sure it remains among you. The source of all love is God, so 
anyone claiming to know God and failing to show to other believers what love is can only mean that person is a deceiver or, as I like to say, just plain old 57 varieties self-deceived. And there's more varieties that for self-deception, right? So when we are a church... We are to continually endeavor to display this virtue. Every one of us, no one's exempt from it. Nobody is exempt from this. That we're to manifest the character of Christ in and through us. And no one has demonstrated this greater than our Lord. Our Lord understood exactly what love is and what was needed to show it and demonstrate it. His pure and tender heart made our needs his own. He loved us so warmly as to care with the deepest personal anxiety for our moral state. He knew full well the burden of our souls, for he loved souls and longed to save souls, and I'm so thankful that he did. And he knew how sinful we were. He knew the immeasurable greatness of human sin. And so what did he do? Did he cast us aside? Did he forget about us? No, he bore the fact of the weight of the sin of humanity and he took it upon himself. And what did he do? He died as a substitute sacrifice in our place. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Him taking showing us the greatest act of love and then fleshing that out. That's the greatest action you could ever have. So this is what he says. A very simple passage. Back, back to uh, your Hebrews passage. I just want to look at it one more time. It says, let love, love of the brethren continue. Don't let this go by the side, the waste. Don't let it go away. Don't let it drift away and make sure that you're part of it. So that means in every relationship, in every conflict that we have, in everything that goes on, we are to show to that other person the love of Christ. Do you do that? And do you even know how to do that? As I said before, I thought I was a pretty, pretty loving person before I came, became a believer. And when I started studying the scriptures, I said to myself, I don't even know what love is. Because everything that I thought was love was just selfishness. What could I get out of it? Even if it, it wasn't packaged in those words or in those thoughts. That was always the end result. If I wasn't going to get something out of it, then I wasn't going to have anything to do with it. See, Sacrificial love is a love that is not getting anything out of it. Except this, I owe love to the brethren. Why? Because of what Christ has done for me. That's why. So that's, that's how he says to be practical. But there is a second imperative in verse number 2 of Hebrews 13, and probably I won't go no further than this today because of our time in the Lord's table and other things we're doing this morning, but here's the second imperative that we must not forget to display the virtue, I'm calling it this, of unusual hospitality. 
unusual hospitality. Look what it says in the first part of verse number two. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, who's he talking to here? He's talking to the church about other believers that they don't know personally, but that God brings across their path. He's not just talking about any old person. He's talking about believers here, all right, because believers are the priority that come across our path. In fact, it means, listen, the imperative is don't neglect to show. There's that action again. So love is first, and then what's the expression of love here? To show hospitality to strangers. Don't neglect, don't overlook it. Do not go on being unmindful of hospitality. Well, you know, back then, there was a greater need for this kind of hospitality because there was no hotels or motels or public resting places or anything like this. So Christians were to be ready to accommodate traveling Christians whom they had not known previously. And they were to show them the difference that Christ had made in their life by a willingness to provide a place to stay for them so they can rest their bodies, to provide some food so they can nourish their bodies, and then, of course, to provide even fellowship so they can have a, a good spiritual well-being when they meet together with you. You share common likes and dislikes. You share what you're learning and growing in Christ. And, and they take these stories and they take what you're learning and they, you pass them on to each other and then they go on to the next place. So this is what the Bible is telling us. Listen, we must not forget, we must always be mindful of anybody God brings across our path. All right? And so in 1 Peter chapter 4, don't turn there, it says this, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, I'm glad he included that. Because usually when a stranger shows up in your life, it's usually at the wrong time. Because you have 101 things to do. Right? And you have these pressing needs, and there's that... Hi. I need your help. Well, you know, I was studying this passage of Scripture this week. And I got to the second part of it in verse number 2. And just notice what it says there real quick. It says this, For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Just got done. I, it was about 1.30 in the afternoon. And... Um, it was, a, it was a kind of a tiring day and closed my Bible. My stomach was a little bit hungry, so I, I rushed out. And right at my, the office door, there was a car. And the car had Florida plates on it. And there was a woman who stood there and came in the doorway. And um, I knew right away when I saw her, she wanted something. And she really had a need. 
So I, I had her come inside. We sat down for a few minutes. We talked about her situation. She began to cry, and she began to weep, and she began to tell me her horrific story. And of course, me as a pastor, when things happen like this, I'm, th- I'm calculating, is she telling me the truth? Like what's true, what's not true, and all those kind of things go through your head. But you know what? She began to tell me th- her, her story and I will not relay all of it, but it was a horrific story. She had had a uh, grandchild that had she had uh, sent up here uh, to North Jersey, and she hadn't heard from her in 22 days. She had just had a, a young baby. Her her granddaughter was raped, and and had this child out of a bad situation. And so she came, she sent her up here for her protection, and she lost contact. So she came up here to find her and she had very little means and so she begins to tell me and she's crying and so I of course want to interject the gospel to make to see where she's at spiritually and so I begin to you know share with her Christ and she begins to tell me how she came to know Christ as her savior that she was raped as a little girl that she was abused as a little girl that both her stepfather and her mother abused her physically and her so she was sent off to her grandmother who was a godly woman who went to church every week and took her and made sure she was there and she said that every week I heard the word of God every week I heard my grandmother tell me about the Bible and about what God wants and and I loved it she says but when I turned 18 I I left and I says I'm not gonna have any of that and she said I lived on my what I thought was right and then she says that I just wrecked my life even more and I came back to my grandmother and uh, she set me straight and that's where I came to know Christ as my Lord and Savior and ever since then I have been putting Christ first in in everything that I I do and she says, I came up here looking for my granddaughter, knowing that I would have to ask people for things because I have nothing. And I went to several other churches, and they told me to come here. I don't know if I was happy or sad about that. But you know what? She was already, she cried an ocean of tears by then. And I just got done studying this passage of Scripture. She was clearly a believer. She was a stranger. I'd never met her before, and she had a need. I said to myself, I'm not going to let her grovel. I'm not going to let her say one more thing. I'm say, this is what we're going to do for you. We're going to give you three days in a hotel until you get together. We're going to fill your tank up with gas, and we're going to send you on your way. And she was just praising the Lord that I didn't get her to... Uh, I don't know. It was just... The Lord was in that situation. Whether she was an angel or not, I don't know. But she went on her way, and she was uh, blessed by you. Not by me, by you. Because of your giving, because of your uh, generosity, when we do ask for gifts to help people, you're there. Matter of fact, we have to tell you to stop giving. That's good. Because then I feel I'm freed up when someone does come along, we can help them. We can't help them with everything, but we can at least show them a little bit of the love of Christ that God's taught us, right, to them. And they can go away blessed knowing that God took care of their needs through us. 
And see, that's what it's about. And so God really taught me a lesson this week. Denise took care of some of the details of calling hotels and arranging things because you don't ever give people cash. That's not a good thing. Uh, you, you supply their needs as best you can without doing that. If you do give them cash, small amounts, so they can get something to eat maybe, but that's it. And she walked away blessed. But I'm thinking to myself, is this just a coincidence after just closing my Bible? I didn't even get out the door and there's a car. It's like the Lord says, okay, you just study that passage, then I'm going to give you something to see if you really believe it. You know what? And the flesh was really, I was struggling with the flesh because the flesh was saying, you know what? You're hungry. Just, you know, tell the lady, you know, we can't help you and go on. And she'll just pull out and that's it. But I couldn't do that. The Lord wouldn't let me do that. And I'm so glad I didn't do that. See, and I know you have situations like that that you can tell me about. See, there's no coincidences. God is providentially working and many times he's testing what you believe to see if you really believe it. And where is he testing you? He's testing you on the practical level. Not on the theological or theoretical level. We can all pass the test, A, B, and C. But when it comes to the practical, because you know why? The practical is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money it's going to cost you your own pleasure of doing the next thing you had to do see that's what it's going to cost you but i guarantee you that when you put into practice what god says in the word of god the blessings are overwhelming to know that wow god was able to use us to supply a simple need to a person i've never met before and probably will never see again in my life so for some have entertained angels without knowing it now of course if you look deeper into this passage of scripture this is not a promise to you that because if you help somebody that 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 person could have been an angel no what it's saying there is that already historically people have entertained and found out later on, wow, I just entertained real angels that were from heaven. In fact, just to remind you of what that psalm is, let's go back to Genesis chapter 18, because remember when Abraham was there in his tent, and it gives us an allusion of to the hospitality he willingly showed the stranger's who came to his tent on one hot day. And it says in Genesis 18 and verse number 1, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And then it says this, When he lifted up his eyes, he looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. This is Genesis 18. Verse number two, and when he saw them, he ran and from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and says, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please, this is, look, look at his hospitality, what he says. Please let a little water be poured, be brought and wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree. 
and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves after you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into his tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate and they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he says, in the tent. See, what is this? This is unusual hospitality. It's spontaneous hospitality. All right, he quickly ran to get whatever he had to get so these particular visitors, strangers, he didn't know them. He didn't even know at this particular point who they were. He did finally know that one of them was the angel of the Lord because he actually said uh, in verse 17, the Lord said, that's Lord as in uh, Yahweh, that's the word for God, all right? Said, I shall I hide uh, from Abraham what I'm about to do. Remember, he was going to tell them about Sodom and Gomorrah, what he was about to do. And so, see, this is just a theophany, an appearance of the second person of the Godhead together with two other angels that came to Abraham and he was ready to be hospitable and in doing so, not realizing that he was actually ministering to angels. One being God himself. Again, we, seen this, we see the same thing in Genesis 19 without turning there. And Lot, what does Lot do? The angels come to Sodom, right? And what does Lot immediately do? He says, Lord, please turn aside to your servant's house and, and spend the night with me, right? And so they refuse at first, but he really urged them strongly and they turned aside to him and entered his house. And it says, and he prepared a feast for them, all right? Not leftovers, a feast. He prepared a whole feast with unleavened bread and they ate. So they brought out the best and they sat down and they ate. And of course, we know that the angels' jobs uh, there, the two angels, it says in verse number one, now the two angels came to Sodom. So we know they're now angels. The Bible identifies them as angels. And, and so therefore, they acted like angels. They performed, uh, they caused uh, the unsaved people there to be struck blind by their power and of course they were the ones who were used to be the instrument to pour down the wrath of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah all right so there it is just going about your day going about your life and God sends people strangers that you don't know what do you do with them how do you treat them all right who do you know who the how do you know who they, who they are? You do talk to them and find out who they are. Now, it doesn't mean that if they're not a believer, you just send them away. It, it, it means that, listen, you have to be, treat people with the love of Christ. Because it could be that very instance that draws them in and brings them to a place where they want to hear the message. They, they're ready to hear the message. And then there's one other example I want to show you because remember, some... Some entertained angels, and that's Manoah in Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Remember, Manoah was going to be the father of Samson. Uh, this is a, during the time of the Judges. This is a terrible time 
during Israel's history, the evil, evil came up uh, to, in, into the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave Israel into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And then notice in verse number 2, or verse number uh, 2, it says, There was a certain man named Zorah. And then it says, uh, what does it say? J uh, Judges chapter 13, verse number 2. It says, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bore no children. Verse number 3, and then notice what it says. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. Then Manoah rose up and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he says, I am. And Manoah says, Now when your words come to pass, what shall the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said she should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine, nor strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I have commanded. And then notice verse number 15. It says, Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. All right. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me i will not eat your food but if you prepare a burnt offering then offer it to the lord for noah manoah did not know that he was the angel of the lord so again here is a situation where god is speaking to people he is sending his angels before them of course this is a very important message to deliver israel through the judges and that judge would be samson this time and then once Manoah realized that he, it was the angel of the Lord speaking to him, the angel of Yahweh speaking to him, I am was speaking to him, the unpronounceable name of God, this is where how he reacted in verse 21. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah and his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Verse 22, so Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named his, him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. So again, here is somebody that God sends... Uh, angels into their path they're strangers to the person uh, that he is sending them to and they act with hospitality they act with kindness and they act with the love of God and they, they realize later wow I have been entertaining the angels of God and even the Lord himself so What's the admonition of doctrine? What's the conclusion and the result and the practicality of doctrine? Make sure you maintain constant love and make sure you never forget unusual hospitality. 
seems kind of odd that God would conclude in a book like Hebrews with such practical things. But that's where we need endurance because it's those relationships. It's those interferences. It's those people who walk into our lives that we're not expecting, we don't know what they're about, and God sends them our way to see what we're going to do. To see what we actually believe. To see if the love of God is actually in our hearts. That's what he's doing. And it's all our responsibilities. It's the body's responsibility to make sure that we respond in the wrong way. And when we don't respond in the wrong the right way that we recognize it and we turn from that bad behavior and that sin and we start doing it the right way right that's what we're to do that's what we're to do and so therefore there here's an out the outworking of theology can anybody do this do you need any college degrees or any advanced education to show constant love or to show unusual hospitality you need none of it you know what you need? All you need is the love of Christ in your heart, right? The love of Christ in your heart. That's what you need. So you need Christ to be able to love that way and to do it without grudging in your heart, right? See, that is where we really show and adorn the gospel. I think in those situations, we're going to have more opportunity to share Christ than in any other situation right and even if they're a believers to be able to strengthen them encourage them in the lord and usually when people come across our path they do have needs they they are hurting people have sinned against them and they just want to know that god's still alive and he's living through his people sometimes all it's all they want to know that's all today I'm going to stop there. We have the Lord's table this morning. And so let me do that. And I'm going to pick it up next time because we're continuing on with relationships. The next time is really what Gabe mentioned to show, to show simple sympathy to those believers who are in distress or who are in prison. And then I'm getting, I'm getting to this passage of Scripture, so I warn you not to be absent that we must keep marriage, the marriage institution in high esteem as believers. That's part of the practical er, er, outworking of theology. And he ends it, at least this section of the imperative, he ends it with this, we must be content with what we possess on earth. Contentment. Whoa, what a crowning virtue, contentment. So that's where I'm heading. Let me have a word of prayer, and then I'll... The men who are serving, you can come forward, and then I'll give a little admonition about our Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I realize in the Word of God that it is real, it is alive, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the Word that cuts deep into the recesses of our heart and exposes exposes and digs out our sinfulness 
And Lord, part of that is our unwillingness to love people. Our lack of keeping in mind how you use us to show hospitality. I pray, Lord, that that would be something that would really change in our life. I pray, Lord, that you would make us ready for these things. Make us even plan them every day. When we wake up in prayer, I pray, Lord, that we may even pray that you may send somebody our way, that we may be a blessing to them. I pray that, Lord. And I just ask you this morning as we partake of our Lord's table, that you, Lord, you would make us ready to receive the elements that, Lord, we know that, that the Lord's table is, is really the institution that you left us here on this earth because it is the core of the gospel. Your death and your shed blood is how we get right with you. So how can we forget that? But Lord, I pray you would never let us take it just by rote or it becomes such a habit that we forget its significance. We don't want that to happen. We want to be aware of what we're doing. And so Lord, teach us every time uh, to come in a worthy manner before you and partake of the elements in an honoring way. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.